0: Father, I want to thank you for uh, all the folks who've turned out tonight. We thank you for uh, the subject at hand, learning to um, accurately, adequately, uh, sufficiently defend the faith, to do this in a distinctively Christian way, uh, obeying 1 Peter 3.15, that we would set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. And that means uh, when we engage with unbelievers, that we're going to engage with them in the way that He prescribes, in the way that Your Word uh, teaches us. We're going to be faithful to Scripture, uh, not to defend theism in general, but to defend Christian theism, a biblical Christian worldview. So we pray that as we learn theology, as we learn uh, the truth of Your Word, are exposed to the Scripture, that You would continue to grow us in strength and understanding, and that You would help us to be consistent then when we speak to others. Uh, particularly when we represent the faith to unbelievers. We are thankful that you have saved us and called us with a holy calling, that we might be your ambassadors to uh, the people of Greeley and this uh, entire region, this community. We are so grateful to belong to you and to represent you to them. What a high and holy privilege and honor. And we just ask that you would help us tonight to learn and to be able to take some of the principles that we've been learning throughout the year and see how they're applied uh, in an expert way uh, in this uh, debate. So we just ask for your, uh, your help to keep us attentive, keep our minds sharp and thoughtful. And may we glorify you in all that we think and say and do. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So we just have two more, besides this one, we have two more sessions this year. Uh, we've got a couple weeks off of uh, Thanksgiving things going on. Uh, next week is the Thanksgiving evening service, and then we'll have uh, Thanksgiving weekend off. But then December 3rd and 10th, uh, two weeks in a row, we'll be together here to continue what we're doing tonight. Uh, tonight is going to start out uh, this, uh, this debate. Um, we're going to continue our study of apologetics with some other things that we have planned in the new year. Uh, so that will be Sunday nights coming soon. Uh, we will send a schedule out to you. I'll, I hope to get that scheduled to you by the end of the year. You'll see some things you know, start to populate on the website as well. So tonight we're going to start uh, to listen to the debate. And I say listen, not watch that right There's a screensaver that will be up all night. Um, this is audio that's on YouTube. Um, but uh, perhaps some of you have heard this debate before. It's uh, between the atheist, Dr. Gordon Stein. You can see the names up there. Dr. Greg Bonson, who is the Christian theist, the apologist that we have quoted from time to time in here. And, and uh, he's popularized the apologetic uh, teaching of Cornelius Van Til, and we've gotten a lot of help from uh, these men, so we're thankful uh, to have an opportunity tonight to hear Dr. Bonson in action. Um, this debate was held at the University of Cal- California, Irvine, back in 1985, and uh, the it's called The Great Debate, Does God Exist? That's the question that's, uh, that's on the floor. And um, the audio quality, as, you, as you'll hear, uh, sounds like it was recorded on a cassette tape uh, back in 1985. <laughs> so it's been digitized, and there is a little bit of, you'll get used to the audio quality. But we have, uh, are there any more transcripts on the back? Just a few. Yes. Just a few? I didn't see any. Still there. Okay. Um, so does everybody? So what I what I intended is for for there to be maybe one per couple or one per family. So if you have if you're married and you're with or you're with a family member and you've got two or more, maybe maybe give that up. Raise your hand if you don't have one. If you're okay, and okay, just one one up here, one up here, maybe. Uh, yeah, maybe you guys could just cozy up there over there. You,
1: can. you guys are brothers and sisters in right?
0: So, um, so anyway, that transcript there is to, to help you to be able to follow along and also to have something to take with you. Uh, we're, this, there are four segments in this debate. This is segment one tonight. It's the longest of the segments, the most expansive. So you'll be able to take this with you and, and be able to write notes and mark it up and stuff like that. Um, and, and, uh. Uh, but what I'd like to do real quick is I, I want to do just a short bit of review because I want you to listen out uh, for some of the things uh, that we've been learning over the past year. Last time we mentioned, we keep on mentioning this, our two-fold apologetic approach. Which text of Scripture does it come from? Anybody know? Okay, Paul, I know you know. <laughs> Somebody else, Joe. Uh, Psalm
1: sixty-four. Okay, Cut. It, no. no. <laughs> but yeah, your,
0: but it, you're in the same Bible, so that's good. <laughs> the pastor, I mean, he's speaking, he's right there. He's very, very close. <laughs> uh, anybody else? Yes, Christy. Well, I don't know the whole reference. It's either it's Proverbs. Yes. Four or twenty-six. 26. 26. 26 Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. Four, yes. And for bonus points, can you quote at least one of those verses? Answerable according to his folly. Oh, that's right. Mm-hmm. And something. Something, <laughs> <laughs> something, something, something. Some. <laughs> okay, so here's the two-fold apologetic approach. If you don't have it down in your notes, write down Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. Okay? So the first verse, Proverbs 26, 4, says, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. That's a, that's a prescription. So that's a, that's a telling you not, what not to do. So anybody know what is the warning there? Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. What's the warning? Don't take on their argument. Okay, good. Don't take on their argument. Don't enter into and think according to their worldview. Just because they say, when you get into an apologetic argument, hey, we don't, we're not dealing here with the Bible. You've got to leave your Bible at home and don't think biblically. You've got to think just from a natural worldview. What do you say? Eh. You've you got to, no, I am a Christian, my, my and so I must argue as a Christian. And That's right. Good. good. So don't answer a fool according to his folly. That is, don't enter into the foolish thinking of a, of a, of a non-Christian, and try to think them out of their worldview. You'll never do it, okay? Mm -hmm. The next verse, Proverbs 26.5 says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So what is that exhortation, Uh, Chuck? If you demonstrate that the unbeliever's worldview reduces to absurdity, you've completed the task of apologetics. Okay, good. So if you've reduced, just for the folks in the back, if you've reduced the unbeliever's worldview to absurdity, you've accomplished the task of apologetics, which is to stop the mouth of the fool. <clears throat> stop his folly. So that he doesn't have a, an answer in his rebellion against God. Leah, you were going to say something pretty similar? Pretty much the same thing, just stop okay. the folly just to expose the folly. So what you're doing, answering a fool according to his folly, there's a translation, I think it's the NAS, says answer a fool as his folly deserves. That is, basically, you want to step into the fool's thinking for a bit and help to reduce it to absurdity. So a reductio ad absurdum kind of an approach to uh, argumentation. You want to help him to see the end of his worldview. You want to help him to see how it doesn't answer any of the most fundamental and ultimate questions of life. So, in in we talked about this in a worldview, <laughs> metaphysical issues like ontology and theology. Where do we come from? Where are we going? What's wrong with the world? Ontology, cosmology, uh, ep- epistemology. How we know what we know. Ethics. Why we behave, How we behave? Uh, how that's all prescribed to us. Okay. So that's what we're going to do with with the with the unbelievers and his worldview is, is answer not a fool according to his folly, that is, don't argue like he argues, lest you be like him yourself. And we are not allowed to be like that because First Peter 3.15 tells us we have to set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. We have to follow his lordship, even in a conversation with an unbeliever. But we are to answer fool as his folly deserves or according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And we need to demonstrate to him, no, you are not wise before the all-wise God. So from that uh, two-fold biblical apologetic, we have learned uh, from Van Til and then popularized by Bonson, uh, four things we want to be mindful of during any apologetic encounter. And by identifying and confronting and interacting with one or more of these four things, we can answer a fool as his folly deserves and then dismantle uh, his worldview, okay? So first, we, this is just review, we said that we're going to expose the arbitrariness of the unbeliever. Arbitrariness is also known as prejudicial conjecture, uh, using terms maybe that we're more familiar with than those terms, we're going to call him out every time he bases a criticism or a belief of his own uh, on his own opinion. So if the basis of his faith, if the basis of his belief or his statement is his own opinion, We're going to call him out for that. So in philosophical terms, that's called prejudicial conjecture. It's committing the philosophical sin of arbitrariness, which, once committed, is fundamentally fatal to one's argument, one's position. Okay? Second thing, we're not not just going to expose arbitrariness. We're going to expose the unbeliever's prejudicial reasoning. Okay? Not just his conjecture, his opinions, but his thinking, his reasoning. We're going to expose his unargued philosophical biases. We're going to Expose his unargued prejudices. Okay? In other words, we're going to call him out for framing his argument in such a way as to favor his own system of thought. And that's when you get into an argument with an unbeliever, get into a, and when I say argument, I don't mean bickering, okay? I mean a debate. I mean, you know, arguing the points back and forth. But, um,. When you get into that kind of a debate or an argument or a conversation and he says, oh, we can't really talk about anything that's in the Bible. Oh, that's coming from uh, a belief in miracles and we can't, we haven't proven that yet. So he's calling for you to prove your biases and your presupposition. All the while he's wanting to frame the argument within his own naturalistic, materialistic, secular atheist worldview, which defines the supernatural out of the world. Okay. He has no basis for doing that. It's called prejudicial reasoning. It's based on his biases that have not been proven, haven't been argued for. They're just simply stated. Okay? Third thing, we're going to provoke dialectical tension. Dialectical tension is, a, is just a fancy way of saying a logical tension in his thinking. So, uh, in, within his worldview. So, we're going to show him how his... Even his metaphysical, his foundational metaphysical assumptions are at odds with each other. We're going to expose how his epistemology and his ethics are in tension uh, or in outright contradiction. We want him to see that the rules that he's set up to run his world and his worldview, they don't even comport with one another. So he's just contradicting himself all the time. So the men, um, uh, yesterday morning at the STM class, we... We're noting how the materialistic, atheistic, naturalistic biases that dominate, uh, predominate today's science and education, popular culture, they have es- they've established an epistemological rule, uh, this, a rule for how they know what they know, um, which is self-contradictory. They tell us that since all that exists is matter, now again, what is that? If I just tell you all that exists is matter, what have I done? I've given you an unargued superna- anti-supernatural There's bias. There's no way to test yeah. I, I've just violated one of those points, huh? Not with matter. There's no way to test it. yeah. So, so, yeah, they say that all that exists is matter. And therefore, empirical observation, uh, what you can see with the senses, what you can test, okay? Empirical observation is the only way we can know anything about the universe, we need to ask them though and show the tension in that statement how did they come up with that kind of a rule by that kind of a rule what scientific study provides us with the evidence that quote empirical observation is the only way we can know anything about the universe how can I how can I know that to be true by scientific study you can't they're making assumptions they're using logical inference that has not been proven and cannot be proven by scientific observations. That's the kind of tensions we want to expose. Fourth thing, we want to show how the unbeliever's worldview fails to provide the preconditions of intelligibility. That is a fancy way of saying that they can't know anything at all through their worldview. They can't interpret experience. They can't make... uh, uh, come to conclusions about morality or beauty or uh, anything in human experience really laws of logic and all that we want so we want to basically this is where we jump in in that proverbs 26 5 uh, manner and we want to jump in show him walk with him a little bit in his worldview to show him how his metaphysics his epistemology and his ethics cannot prove anything they can't even provide an adequate explanation for anything not science, not logic, not morality, not beauty, and no other intelligible experience uh, of humanity that we all share. So in short, we want the unbeliever to come to understand and come to the conclusion that apart from the Christi- apart from Christian theism, it's impossible to prove anything at all. This is called the transcendental argument for God's existence, which proves God from the impossibility of the contrary. Okay? So that's what we are... Uh, aiming to do in our argumentation, and that's what we're going to hear on display uh, tonight in this debate. I have um, reviewed all that because I want you to be looking out for Dr. Bonson putting this into practice in this debate with Dr. Gordon Stein, who is an intelligent atheist. He's not a snarky, uh, we've heard one of those already, uh, a snarky uh, atheist and all that. He's actually an intelligent, respectable man who's trying to follow the rules of the debate format and everything. Um, how many of you, by the way, are, are familiar with the format of, of uh, moderated formal debates?
1: So, um,
0: anybody? Put up your hand high. Anybody attended one, like been there present to see them? You, you're good. So you really should go. Um, if, if they have debates at UNC, maybe we could do a, do a church field trip and go out and, and uh, check it out. But. Um, uh, and I don't count presidential or vice presidential debates in that
1: category.
0: <laughs> but what you'll hear within this uh, debate, there are rules um, for, there are, there's a format and there are rules within each part of the format. There's a moderator to keep them operating within the rules. Sometimes you'll hear even the audience start to violate the debate rules and the moderator will say, hey, that's enough of that, you know, order. Um Several segments. We're going to cover the segments in the next several weeks. Segment one, which will be going through tonight, is it is a 55-minute segment. But I think that um, I'm going to through a little trick on YouTube called speed up the audio. Um, I'm going to speed up some of the audio for Dr. Stein because, well, because I want to. So, um,
1: but, so
0: there's uh, in segment one, there are 15-minute opening uh, statements from each. A debater. There's a short session after each 15-minute opening statement. There's a short section of cross-examination. Each guy gets five minutes on the other guy. And then there's an eight-minute rebuttal period. Okay? Segment two, which we'll get to next time, follows the same pattern, but the order of the speakers is reversed, and then the the times are shortened. And then segment three has, in, has its closing statement. Segment four is audience uh, questions and interactions. So that's, those are all uh, very, very Interesting to listen to. So, tonight we're only going to cover segment one. I'll probably, as I said, put Dr. Stein's openings uh, or some of his statements on uh, higher speed. And it's I, just, I'm not being unfair there, but it's just not as instructive to follow some of his stuff um, carefully because he misreads and miscategorizes Dr. Bonson from the very start. And from then on, he has lost the, he's really lost the debate. But he still interacts in an intelligent way, so it's, it's worth it. You've got printed copies. Hopefully it's easier to follow. I'm going to stop after every major section. We'll make some comments and do some, uh, do some interaction. I'll ask you some questions. So without further ado, let's pray that the Lord keeps the internet on. Okay? Here we go. Is in the form of an interrogative question Does God exist?
2: Oh, Dr. Bonson, I'll now ask for your 15 minute opening statement, please. I, I want to begin this evening with three opening and introductory remarks about the nature of the debate itself. First of all, it's necessary at the outset of our debate to define our terms, as always the case. And in particular, here, I should make it clear what I mean when I use the term. Specify that I'm arguing particularly in favor of Christian theism, and for as a unit or system of thought, and not for anything like theism in general. And there are reasons for that, three. the uh, Various conceptions of deity found in the world religions are, in most cases, logically incompatible, leaving no unambiguous sense to general theism, whatever that might be. Second. To be philosophically defensible, each of them being internally incoherent or undermining human reason and experience. And thirdly, since I am, by the grace of God, a Christian, I cannot from the heart actively defend those religious faiths with, with which I disagree. My commitment is to the triune God and Christian worldview based on God's revelation in the Old and the New Testaments. So, first, and then, I'm defending Christian theism. Secondly, I want to observe. Not at issue in the debate, and on the basis of which we hope you'll consider the debate, it must be clear that we are debating about philosophical systems, not the people who adhere to or profess them. Our concerns with the objective merits of the case, which can be made for atheism or Christian theism, not related subjects. Existence. First of all, the nature of evidence. How should the difference of opinion? For example, the Virgin. and sure.
0: So you'll notice uh, some errors in the transcript. I'm, I'm indebted to—I'm not even sure who put it together on the internet, but I found a copy of the transcript and and then spent a good amount of time correcting the errors that were in that, and I missed some, uh, but um, you know, pretty well done. You know, hats off to whoever did that on the internet. I really appreciate that. Um, what are your uh, what are your thoughts? Just. Very quickly as we, um, I've got some questions, but I want to see what your thoughts are. General thoughts. Anyone? Anyone? Don't be slow. Don't be slow. we got short time. So, Violet?
1: Shouldn't he have waited for Dr. Steen's response before he started going through the process of like, breaking down worldviews?
0: No. Because uh, in a, the, for, the formal moderated debate, he has an opening section that it's only him talking. Okay. So Dr. Sines going to be next. We'll hear him next, and he'll be interacting with us on that. So, yeah, it's just the it's just the the, uh, the form of the debate, the the what's set up for the night. So that's why it's all Wes? Well, I know you're doing it on purpose, but it's, uh, that was the the formality of Proverbs 26:4. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Him laying the groundwork, setting the standard of this is what this is. The and, and now I can understand why I, this is going to seem like a personal attack to anybody that's on the backside of that. Mm-hmm. debate um for reading this I'm, I'm assuming i haven't heard this but yeah so he's laying the groundwork saying we have to follow these rules exactly exactly laying the groundwork very important mm-hmm. um and and uh we'll we'll get to what groundwork actually he's laying that's so vital yeah scott yeah the common usage of um guess the question is different than what they're using it as it's the opposite.
2: Um, you know, we, we used it like, well, there's a there's a question that has to be answered. And so
1: we'll say that begs the question and we'll keep going. Oh. They're saying if you beg, if you, you if you beg the question that you've failed, essentially. Yeah, begging the out.
0: question is a is a philosophical fallacy, it's a logical fallacy that's basically you're assuming what you're trying to prove. Like, you know, um, why do you believe in the resurrection of Christ? Well, because the Bible tells me so. Um, why do you believe the Bible? Well, because Jesus rose from the dead and he said it's true. You know, so that's, I'm going in a circle and I'm kind of assuming what I'm trying to prove in the statement, so I need to not do that. And that's, that's what, you'll, you'll hear about that, some of that going back and forth. Um, just real quick, just real quick, uh, comments, real
1: quick one. I just thought it was really smart the way he anticipated some of the, um, you know, things that yeah. Stein could, <laughs> um,
0: say to kind of derail his arguments for the existence of God. It was a very smart way to start out the debate. Exactly. Yeah, very smart way to start out the debate, anticipating what his opponent might be bringing into the conversation. It's clear he's done this before. (laughs) (laughs) This isn't his first rodeo. But it also tells you something about what we ought to be doing. We ought to be getting into conversations, and when we hear something that's kind of stumping us, maybe we could go back from that conversation and learn a little. Maybe do a little bit of study, a little bit of reading, so that we're more informed for the next conversation we have. So just because he is, I mean, he's got his Ph.D. in philosophy; he's a brilliant man. Um, just because he's that doesn't mean we shouldn't also, likewise, study. In as much as we have, uh, Amy.
1: I was going to say that he kind of has an ahead on this because Stein has published and has written a lot of stuff,
2: and That's we don't right. always have that advantage of going in because I don't know your worldview because you, you don't publish sure. books on it. <laughs> well, I mean some people blog about it. You
1: might be able to go read their blog and prepare. <laughs> but it's important for us to know where people are coming from because they might be quoting something like this that they've heard by jo- you know by Dr. Stein and going from there. True. So we still need to know where the world is coming from. Yeah that's true. So we can be prepared for it.
0: And you're gonna hear Doctor uh, Stein quote Thomas Paine, he's going to quote other philosophers as well um, and use their definitions and bring them in. So he's done his own reading to help educate himself to have this argument. Um, and, And you're right. So we need to... Just in anticipation of a conversation, you get into a little conversation with somebody, you find out that this person comes from this certain worldview, well maybe you want to maybe do a little research on that and then have that follow-up conversation. So just so you can know where they're coming from.
1: It goes to that verse, be in the world but not of the world, we do need to understand.
0: You got it, that's right. Good, so just as you guys have pointed out, notice how Dr. Bunsen started by framing the argument. Um, He set boundaries for what he would be doing and what he would not be doing. He set boundaries for um, the perspective that he's coming from. He's he's honest up front about his pre-commitments. He's honest up front about his worldview, where his presuppositions are coming from. Isn't that refreshing (laughs) to get into a conversation and just be completely honest, just to lay it all out on the table? You can do this. You don't have to be in a formal, moderated debate to do this. You can say, well, listen, I'm having a conversation with you, and I'm a committed Christian. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ who commands my conscience and commands my heart about what I can and cannot say. So I can't agree with you on that point. I can't go where you're wanting to go. I'd love to have the conversation, but I can't go there. Um, So I'd encourage you to do the same. It really does take all the pressure off right from the very beginning and um, just say I'm a Christian arguing for Christian theism. Monson then spends a lot of time, or a bit of time, actually, to anticipate like you said leah anticipate and maybe deflate some of the arguments that stein might want to use and i don't think he's just doing it as a as a tactic to win but he just wants to not waste any time on foolish you know rabbit trails so he just wants to get to the point so what he does next though is vital and it touches on things we've discussed here's a question for you and just be very quick with your answers because i'm seeing the time Fritter away. When Bonson talked about the nature of evidence, the crackers in the pantry fallacy, uh, what is he anticipating that's going to be coming from Dr. Stein?
1: see it, to believe it? Yeah.
0: yeah. He's a materialist. Stein. Okay, so he's a materialist. He's anticipating um, that that uh, Bonson, or he's anticipating that Stein is, is tends to judge his worldview by his own materialistic presuppositions. Mm-hmm. So he wants to expose that right <laughs> from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Very smart. Very... Uh, very important. He, he, you know, he knows that Stein is going to use prejudicial reasoning. He's going to use from his athe- use rules from his own atheistic materialistic worldview to try to frame the debate. And Bonson says, "Oh no, no, no! Let's stop right there." Here's another question. Bonson quotes Stein. I think you can see this on your page three. Uh, he says, he Dr. Stein is saying this the use of logic or reason is the only valid way to examine the truth or falsity of any statement which claims to be factual. Then he asked Dr. Stein how Dr. Stein proves the statement itself. Mm-hmm. That's clever, isn't it? Think back to our four pronged strategy and tell me, what is Dr. Bonson doing? Uh-huh. I'm hearing those sort of... He's answering the full according to his argument. Right, and that's the two-prong. That's the two-fold uh, okay. approach. But what's the four... There are four things we're trying to keep in mind, and he's, he's doing one of those. What's he, what's he doing? I think he's... I think he's, he's, he's... Yes, okay. Is that what you're going to say, Chuck? Yeah. Same thing. Yes, exactly. He's... He's. Did you guys hear that up no. here? No. Okay, so you tell me what, what he's doing. Back there.
1: Dialectical the tension.
0: Yes, dialectical tension. Did you overhear it or? Okay, good. <laughs> I just want to make sure everybody's getting it. So, so Bonson, Bonson is here demonstrating, based on, what, uh, based on what Dr. Stein has already written, he's, he's demonstrating the dialectical tension in Dr. Stein's worldview. He knows Dr. Stein to be a materialist. All that exists is matter, and that he cannot prove laws of logic by appealing to a purely materialistic universe, which denies the existence of immaterial, absolute, and universal laws. One more question for you bonson quotes dr stein you can look on this on page four just this just this quotation oh daniel's got more copies if you'd like your own personal copy or you're missing one just stick okay four people stick up your hand if you want (laughs) anyway on page four he says uh supernatural explanations are not allowed in science that's dr stein's quote supernatural explanations are not allowed in science again remembering our four-pronged strategy what is bonson Confronting here. Prejudicial conjecture. Yeah, prejudicial conjecture, uh, opinion, um, or this, you could also say even the second one too. uh, This is an unargued bias against supernatural explanations. He's basically trying to define them out of the debate. You can't use supernatural explanations in science. Says who? That's arbitrariness. That's, That's arbitrariness. And it's a bias that he has not proven. Sure, you can have that bias. We all have our biases, right? We are biased in favor of supernatural explanations within a natural, uh, natural world, right? We, we favor that bias. But we can argue it. We can prove uh, or explain or argue for our bias or our presupposition. If you didn't have the bias, you wouldn't have a debate. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. So the denial of the supernatural, or miracles, is evidence of prejudicial reasoning, which is an unargued philosophical bias. Dr. Stein uh, can't just say that and then let that settle the argument. He can't just say that and get away with setting the boundaries around the debate and saying, we're going to play on my field by my rules with my ball. <laughs> and Dr. Uh, Bonson says, oh, no, 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 we're both on this field. And in fact, this isn't even our field; it's God's field. We stand on His earth, and we must submit to His rules. <laughs> so, let's listen to Dr. Stein. Okay. And here's where I'm going to—I'm going to, um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll let him say a few things, and then I'll speed up the audio on him because he's getting off base right away. So, okay. Ooh, yeah. let's watch this. Dr. Bonson, opening statement. We now turn to
2: you, Dr. Stein. Your 15-minute opening statement, please. Can everybody hear me? I assume so. Well, I will, I will grant uh, Dr. Bonson his expertise on, on a conditional resolution of the apparent paradox of self-deception, which was his dissertation. I don't know how much more relevant that is to our discussion tonight than mine is, probably not anymore. But um, I would like to also thank Dr. Bunsen for uh, showing us that he really doesn't understand too much about atheism. I will try to straighten him out. This is an important question we're discussing. Perhaps it's the most important question in the whole field of religion. Because if God does not exist, then the Bible can't be the Word of God, Jesus can't be the Messiah
1: and Christianity cannot be true as long, before, as well as other religions
2: so we, we're dealing with an important issue here now Dr. Bonson repeated for me that the existence of God is a factual question I, I don't think he would dispute that I think he misinterpreted what I said when I said that, that we solve factual questions in the same way I didn't mean exactly the same way I mean with the use of reason, logic, and evidence and that is what I'm holding now First of all, let me uh, make clear what atheism is and is not. I think this is a very commonly misunderstood subject. Atheists do not say that,
1: they're, that they can prove that there is no God. They also, an atheist
2: is not someone who denies that there is a God. Rather, an atheist says that he has examined the proofs that are offered by the theists and he finds them inadequate. Now... If I were to say that this gentleman sitting on the front step could fly by flapping his arms, I would be making a kind of unusual statement. And it would be up to me or him to demonstrate that he could
1: fly. If he can't demonstrate it, then we don't believe that he can fly. Now, if he doesn't demonstrate it right now,
2: that doesn't mean he can't fly. It just means he can't fly right now. Now, so that we do not deny that he can fly, because he can't demonstrate it right now, but we say he has not proven his case. And therefore we do not believe that he can fly until he does so prove so. And this is what an atheist says about the existence of God. He says the case is unproven, not disproven. So an atheist is really someone who is without a belief in God or who does not believe in a God. It is not someone who denies the existence of a God or who uh, says that one does not exist or can prove that one does not exist. Now, I think uh, I would like to define a God as well. I'm not so sure I like his definition. I'm not going to stick to just Christian God. I'm going to stick to all kinds of God. And I'm going to use the definition which both Father Copleson and Bertrand Russell both agreed on in their famous debate. Now, this was both sides, the leading exponents of both sides both managed to agree on the definition of God, so I think it must be at least an adequate one, if not a great one. And this is the definition. A supreme personal being, distinct from the world, and creator of the world. Now, before asking for proof of God's existence, we need a, we need this satisfactory definition, and uh, I, I think I've given one which I will find at least satisfactory. And if Dr. Bonson doesn't agree, we can hear from him. Now, nothing can qualify as evidence for the existence of a God unless we have some idea what we're searching for. That's why we need the definition. Um, let's Okay, now throughout history, eleven major kinds of evidence or proof have been offered in my for the existence of God. In my campus visits, I have heard all kinds of other things offered as proof, but they basically fall into those eleven categories with some juggling. And if these eleven proofs do not work out logically or lead to logical self-contradictions, then we can only say that God's existence is not proved, it's unproven, not disproven, as I mentioned before. Now, if, if I um, assert that this gentleman can fly by clapping his arms, as I said the burden of proof was on him, supposing I make a more complicated statement, supposing I say that my dog can talk in complete sentences, Okay, well, again, I'm making a kind of unusual statement, and it's up to me to offer the evidence. So i better be prepared to do that, or I'd better be prepared to have people not believe what I say. And I'd like a demonstration either of this gentleman's flying or of my dog talking, if I were a person who was being asked to make a conclusion before I admitted that such things were possible or existed. Okay, now how easy would it be to show that this gentleman cannot fly or that my dog cannot talk in its complete sentences? As I mentioned before, uh, we get into a real problem when we're trying to show that something cannot happen or that something does not exist. For example, if, if I wanted to prove that unicorns do not exist, I can examine this room and we can find out that there are definitely no unicorns in this room, a small area, but to prove the general non-existence of something like unicorns you have to search the entire universe simultaneously and then we can only say that no unicorns existed at the moment we searched the universe but you know maybe they were there five minutes before or if we only searched the whole earth maybe they were on another planet at the time I mean, there are all kinds of other possibilities so you cannot prove that something does not exist and that's why as I mentioned before the definition of an atheist is not someone who
0: thinks he has proven that God does not exist because you cannot Okay, now what he's going to do at this point is run through his 11 theistic proofs. I'd like to give him his time, but I'm going to speed it up. Thank um, you. Now but before we do that, I'd like to ask a couple of questions. Um, in, the, in the time it sounds like he's kind of pausing quite a bit. It's not because he's inarticulate. I think it's because he's editing his notes. Based on Dr. Bonson's opening statement, he realized he's not dealing with your garden variety (coughs) evidentialist apologist. That's right. He's dealing with something completely different that he was not prepared to handle, which is what's going to come out in these 11 theistic proofs. And you can tell right away uh, that he has really lost the the debate. He's failed to to be able to frame the argument as he'd like to frame it.
1: Christy? But he's kind
0: of saying we don't
1: really have anything to debate because he's saying I can't not prove the existence of God. Like, yeah. I mean,
0: I don't, I don't know. It's so, it doesn't make any sense. So, so here's, a, here's a first question. You've anticipated it. I want to ask this question of you. Um, right out of the gate, as you said, he has decided to use a rather unconventional way of defining atheism, hasn't he? Yeah. Um, yeah. So he said an atheist is not someone to, who denies there is a God. Rather, an atheist says he's examined the proofs offered by theists and finds them inadequate. Um, anyone, as God. So, anyone. Huh, so, What's that? He's setting himself up as God. I'll make this decision. Okay, good. So, we'll come back to that in a second. But anybody know why he wants to use that definition in particular instead of an atheist is one who denies the existence of God? Yeah, let's go to Wayne first. Without putting himself in the position where he has to prove the non existence. Or he has to prove a negative. Yeah. Right. right. Right? Is that what you're going to say? I don't know if he's doing it on purpose, but it's the, the conundrum of he
2: can exist in pure doubt without any proofs <laughs> oh. where he's coming
0: from, if he knows it or not. Yeah, it could be. I, I doubt that he's doing that. I think he's trying to avoid putting himself into a corner because, because it's logically impossible to prove a, prove a negative. You have to be essentially, and we've, we've made this joke before, that you essentially have to be God to prove there is no God. You have to be everywhere. At every time, having all knowledge, being a, you know om- omniscient and, and omnipresent, in order to prove that see everything that there is no God, check all the evidence and all that stuff. And, and in fact, uh, I, see, last, God, I see. I his last sentence and that last paragraph is a critical one, right? As I mentioned before, the definition of an atheist is not someone who thinks he's proven that God does not exist
1: because he cannot. Yeah,
0: that's right. He's defined him out of the universe. Okay, so this is this is becoming. Um, standard already of to hear and this is what we talked about before I think it was Gary Ode that asked that intellectual question about uh, univocal speech and analogical speech and analogical thinking, univocal thinking, he was trying to wonder what is the difference between those things and here we hear Dr. Stein speaking univocally, that is definitionally he's defining his own universe Mm -hmm. he is is John Lennon's um, you know, John Lennon and he go hand in hand, don't they? Imagining their world together. Second thing in Dr. Stein's responses to theistic proofs, did you ever hear him respond? Oh, I'm sorry. We're not gonna. We're not gonna see that. I'll, I'll save that question. So um, he also, in, in speaking of definitions, he also defined the term God, didn't he? <laughs> he said he's not gonna accept Dr. Bonson's um, restriction to Christian theism, but he says, I want to mm-hmm. broaden the definition.
1: Okay.
0: Are we going to let an atheist tell us what kind of God that we must prove or not prove? Oh, no. Yeah, no. no. Once again, watch out for this in your own conversations when they tell you this is, how you, this is the kind of God we're going to talk about. You say, uh, says who? Why? Oh, one more thing, I see your hand. One more thing. He says, I'm going to use the definition which Father Copplestone and Bertrand Russell both agreed on in their debate. The fact that Father Copplestone, whoever he is, agreed with Bertrand Russell on a definition tells us right away we should not use that definition. Okay? So what is he doing in that uh, instance right there? It's called appeal to authority. Yeah. It's, it's pulling in other authorities that he thinks you need to submit to. You need to bow the knee to. What's the problem with that? we have one authority in our hearts, don't we? It's Jesus Christ. It's his thinking that is going to rule our minds as we talk. Not Father Cobblestone and Bertrand Russell. But, okay? All right, so, um, uh, Joe, you're... I was going to say, Thompson already addressed that in the beginning? That the other ones were, he said other gods are... He did. Indefensible. He did, that doesn't matter.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, just okay. real quick seems like he's just reaffirming what Dr. Bonson did about the crackers in the pantry. Like,
1: the unicorns and the, you know, the guy flying.
0: Exactly right. As if Dr. Bonson adequately um, anticipated the whole argument, didn't he? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Okay, so here we go. Eleven theistic proofs. We've actually talked about some of these, but not all eleven. Here we go. Okay, now of those 11 major proofs, um, I'm going to go over some of
2: them very quickly. They've been, they've been 900 years in the formulation. Uh, during this 900 years, this is basically what people have come up with. The first cause argument also called the cosmological argument. It says that everything must have a cause. Therefore, the universe had a cause. And that cause was God. God was the first or
1: uncaused cause. Okay, well, this leads to a real logical body for the theists. Because if everything must have had a cause, then God must have had a cause. If God had a
2: cause, then he was not the first or uncaused cause. If God did not have a cause, then not everything must have a cause. If not everything needs a cause, then perhaps the universe is one of those things which doesn't need a cause. So you see that we've gotten into a logical bind there, and that proof basically fails. Now I'm giving you a real short synopsis of these proofs, so they can fill an entire book in half, so you don't understand how oversimplifying slides I think i the logic of the book the time. The second one is the design argument, also called the teleological argument. It says that the universe is wonderful and exhibits evidence of design or order. Things which show such wonderful design must have had a designer who was even more wonderful, and that designer was God. Well, if the universe is wonderfully designed, surely God is even more wonderfully designed. He must therefore have had a designer even more wonderful than he is. If God did not require a designer, then there's no reason why such a relatively less wonderful thing as the universe needed one. Again, we're into a logical self contradiction. The argument from light says light cannot originate from the random movement of atoms, yet, light exists. Therefore, the existence of a god is necessary to create light. Well, basically, light didn't originate from random movements of atoms, and no scientists would say so. Because there are limits on the chemical composition and physics of atoms, and they don't move in any possible way. Chemicals do not combine in any possible way. That's why when you see these 1 billion to 1 kind of odds that people said that light originating, they're all wet. They haven't considered the possibility that not every reaction can occur. <laughs> So uh, it's possible to explain the origin of life without a God, and using the principle of parsimony or Occam's razor, I think we are left with the uh, simple explanation as the one without a God. I'll go into more detail on that later. <laughs> so we have the argument from the real theology, which seems to be one of the uh, It says the Bible says that God exists, and the Bible is the inspired word of God. Therefore, what it says must be true. Therefore, God exists. Well, this is obviously a circular argument. It uh, begs the question. We're trying to show that God exists, therefore calling the Bible the word of God is not committed, because it assumes the existence of the very thing we're trying to prove. Now, if the Bible is not the word of God, in this case, then we cannot give any real weight to the fact that it mentions that God exists. It does not become a proof. In fact, to prove God from the Bible the same is saying things on its head. First, you must prove God, and then you may say, examine exactly whether God wrote the Bible or dictated it or inspired it, started. but you can't really use the Bible, as Dr. Bonson seems to want to do, as evidence of the existence of God, per se. Mm-hmm. And we have the argument for miracles. It says that the existence of miracles requires the presence of a supernatural force, that is, a God. Miracles do occur, therefore there is a supernatural force or God. Again, this is... Begging the question, it requires that you must believe in the existence of a God
1: first, beforehand, and then you say that there are such things as miracles, which are the acting of a God to create violations of his
2: own laws. So it is not evidence per se, it can serve as supplementary once you have good evidence in another kind of a way of the existence of a God, then you can use miracles as an additional argument. But in and of itself, it doesn't show the existence of a God because it assumes that which is to be proven. That's why, want to quote you one of the things that Thomas Payne about miracles. If you see an account given of such a miracle by a person who the same sort, it raises a question to the mind of the very, that is very easily decided, which is, is it more probable that nature should go out of her course or that a man should tell a lie? We have never seen, in our time, nature go out of her course, but we have good reason to believe that millions of lies have been told at the same time. It is therefore at least millions to one that the reporter of the miracle tells a lie. I think there's a good odds. When it comes to the ontological argument, one of the most difficult ones to explain to people, but basically it says, God is by definition perfect. A necessary quality of any perfect object is that it exists. If it did not exist, it would not be perfect.
1: If perfection requires existence, then God exists, since God is perfect. Now, I don't know if you follow that, but
2: I think this has been pretty well uh, ripped to shreds by philosophers, and I think the problem lies with the, with the trouble. The trouble is with the word exists. In order for something to be perfect, it must first exist. I and mean, if, if something did not exist, it would, the word perfect wouldn't mean anything. So first you must have existence, then possibly you may have perfection. So this is, again, this is going backwards. If you must have an existing God, then you can decide that he's perfect. If perfectness is quality of, of a God, then he may be perfect. But he first must exist. Then we have a moral argument all people have moral values. The existence of these values cannot be explained unless they were implanted in people by a God. Therefore, God exists. Well, there, the answer to this is that there are similar ways of explaining the origin of moral values without requiring the existence of a God to implant to in people. Besides, if moral values did come from a God, then all people should have the same moral values, and they don't. People's moral values are the result of accommodation the accommodations they have made in their particular environment and taught to their children as a huge survival mechanism. And then we have a wish argument. Without the existence of a God, people who have no reason to live or be good, therefore there has to be a God. Most people believe
1: in a God, therefore there is a God. This really isn't a proof, it's just a wish. It's like saying it'd be nice to have a God, which it would, but you know, that doesn't have anything to do with whether there is one or not. Um, finally, we
2: have oh, an argument from faith. The existence of a God cannot be proven by the use of reason, but only by the use of a faith. The use of faith shows that there is a God, therefore God exists. Reasonable logic is a proven way of obtaining factual information about the universe. Faith has never been shown to produce true information about the universe because, because faith is believing something is so because you want it to be so, without adequate evidence. Therefore, it can't be used to prove the existence of anything. In addition, the additional fact is that faith often gives you the
1: opposite answer to what is given by reason to the same problem. This also shows that faith does not provide valid answers. Now, the argument for religious experience Many people have claimed to have had a personal experience or encounter with God, therefore he must exist. Now this is a difficult
2: one to handle because first of all I've never had such an experience but I'm sure people have absolutely obviously reported having had such experiences. But the feeling of having met God must not be confused with the fact of having met him. This is a
0: a confusion, a semantic confusion, and and also uh, we cannot use our own feelings as if they
2: were valid information about the world. They are feelings that we have inside of us, but you cannot demonstrate them to another person. They cannot be used as evidence. If everyone had that same experience, like if we all went around the room and we all agreed there was a clock over there, then we might say that the vision of a clock was a consensual one that everyone agreed on. Other than that, if you saw a clock and nobody else did or only like two or three people did in the room, we would have a bit of a problem. Pascal's wager is the last of the 11 arguments. I use this a lot on the campuses. It says, Since you don't know whether a God exists or not, you have no way of finding out in this life you have nothing to lose by believing in God. On the other hand, you have a lot to lose in not believe in God, and therefore, later, the later turns out to be one after you dead. Well, this is only true if, number one, you're right about a God, and secondly, you pick the right, secondly, right religion, because you might wind up at uh, the judgment day and be about a God, but he says, What religion were you? And you say, I was an Islam, believer in Islam. He said, Sorry, Catholicism is the right religion. Down you go. <laughs> So in addition, we might also have we have a God who punishes people who live virtuous lives. Let's say an atheist who lived virtuous life, did wonderful deeds in the world, but just did not believe in a God. If a God punishes him, got an irrational God is just as likely to punish a believer as the
1: other people. Okay. We will now move to our period of crossing.
0: Okay. So we'll go to the cross-examination next to just uh, you know, all these, as we mentioned before, all these 11 arguments for um for the existence of God. As Christian theists, we can, we can see the validity in some of these arguments. Uh, they're good arguments. He misstated, misquoted some of them, um, probably a little flustered, uh, but uh, we'll, we'll say that and be gracious. But, um, but he, he did mis, misstate some of those things and some of them he was inconsistent, but I think he's hurrying through what he knows has uh, actually lost all its weight, and why is that? Why, why, did, why did those 11 arguments and those responses, rebuttals to those arguments, completely miss the mark? Yeah, Joe. They were based on logic. And the already proved that logic can't start with logic, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, actually, Bonson is going to uh, talk about the use of logic. In fact, he says that it's, it's good to use logic. Um, so it's that's not the essential issue, um, but there's a there's another fundamental reason that's going less and the. Well, I was going to say it's humanism that whole the reasoning part that was framed. He's outside of Okay. So the so back to the reason he's he's um, he's framed well, you know, in what you're saying, you guys. He, he doesn't have a worldview that can actually give the preconditions of reason, right? So yeah. the use of logic, use of logical laws and everything like that. He hasn't, hasn't proven that, and he has no worldview that can support it. He has no foundation on which to stand. No pure being of God to, to explain, to give us laws of logic, okay? But we'll get there in just a second. Um, we're not quite there yet. What's the... What, what has he missed... Um, in Bonson's actual argument. Paul, and then Yeah, uh,
2: I, I don't think he understood it from the outset, um, the idea of being able to prove the existence of God from the impossibility of the contrary. He's, he's been confronted with something he's never heard on the campuses before, and he doesn't know how to, to deal with that, and he's trying to drag Bonson down to those campuses on that level when he's arguing something quite different. So it's
0: not relevant. I mean, what what, what he's presenting really has no. no relevance at all. I think actually when he was reading through his notes and going through these arguments, he came upon number eight, the wish argument, and said, boy, I wish I could not be here anymore.
1: <laughs>
0: Wayne? Yeah, and, uh, along a similar line, uh, his entire uh, proposition here is a straw man fallacy. He has not actually responded to a single thing. He Bingo. has built his own logical construction and then attacked it that has no relevance to the discussion. It, it may be, yeah, you can attack that all you want to, but if your opponent isn't making any of those arguments, yeah. but is using this number 12, the transcendental argument for the existence mm-hmm. of God, well, then you're completely off the mark. Yeah, you're basically just hacking and strum into pieces. And he's not even, some of those things, he's not doing a great job at doing that. And so, okay, so. In fact, his, uh, his example of the clock disproves mm-hmm. itself. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay, so let's get into the cross examinations. We're going to listen to them both. Um, it's eight minutes, eight 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 and a half minutes, and uh, then we'll stop and do another question.
1: Examination.
0: The first
2: cross examiner will be Dr. Bonson. We'll have an opportunity to cross examine Dr. Stein. Could please have silence. We would appreciate it. <laughs> and, Dr. Stein, do you have any sources that you can give to us very briefly yeah. that define uh, <laughs> atheism as one who uh, finds the thesis inadequate, rather than one who denies the existence of God? Yes, sir. George Smith's book, which you will find for sale in the back of the room upstairs later, called well, Atheism: The Case Against God. Make, which I think is the finest book ever written on the subject, makes this quite explicit. I have to have a copy right here. I can quote you the exact words if you want to be necessary. Do okay. you have any other sources? Do I have any other sources? Yes. Far, sure. Uh, Charles Bradwell, who uh, I will give it to you right now. If 200 uh, years ago, Charles Bradwell made the comment in one of his uh a plea for atheism, he said, that would be fine. Okay. Dr. Stein, did you hear Dr. Bonson use the following argument? So the Bible says that God exists, and the Bible is the inspired word of God, therefore what it says must be true, therefore God exists. You did not use that and just assumed that that was so because you were quoting from the Bible as if I didn't ask you what I assumed, I asked you if I used that argument. No, you did not use the argument, but you used the results of the argument. Dr. Stein, you mentioned 11 you know, basic proofs for the existence of God. Did you mention the transcendental proof for the existence of God? Uh, no, I didn't mention it by name. I think it is not a proof. Uh, I would not call it a proof. As I understand that, and I've been on that point, that questions answered in the very same way? No, they're not. They're answered by the use of certain methods, though, that are the same. Reason, logic, and presenting evidence. Right. I heard you mention logical binds and logical self-contradictions in your speech.
1: You did say that? I said it. I used that phrase, yes. Do you believe there are a lot of logic, then? <clears throat> Absolutely.
2: Are they universal? They are agreed upon by human beings. They aren't laws that exist out in nature. They are are they simply concessions then? They are conventions, but they are conventions that are self-verifying. Are they sociological laws or laws of thought? They are laws of thought which are interpreted by men and promulgated by men. Are they material in nature? How can a law be material? That's the question I'm going to ask you. (laughs) I would say no. Thank you. I just
1: wanted
2: to <laughs> Dr. Johnson, uh, would you call God material or immaterial? Immaterial. In- mm-hmm. What is something that's immaterial? that all the ones that you've created does I mean, I hear it, like, similar, as
0: it was similar, Okay. <laughs> uh, it's going from bad to worse for yeah. poor Dr. Stein, but uh, any any quick, very quick, essential comments on that last section? I'm looking at the time, so quick, essential, yes, Any.
2: It seemed like Dr. Stein was really expecting the audience to laugh and agree with him, but he realized fairly early on that they were not on the side. Yeah, like he was waiting for the pause, for applause, or
0: for laughter, and it wasn't there. Yeah, yeah, it could be true. Um, I, I'm not sure who all was in attendance. You definitely hear some Christian students in attendance. He's down at UC Irvine, uh, which is not a Christian school or anything. So, um, but I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, wait. There's a lot of arrogance, uh, and and a lot of, uh, frankly, just dismissal of something that Vonson says. When he gets into a corner, he just dismisses it, says something to the effect of, "Well, well, we might touch on that later, and just shifts. Exactly right, exactly right. Is almost to put him on notice that, you know, I've got your number and I'll come back to that. And, you know, he hopes to come back to it, but, but doesn't actually address it. Can't really, yeah. So one, one thing I want to point out in this uh, in this, uh, cross-examination period, obviously we, we hear some, some really good points, but you hear Dr. Bonson calm and rest,
1: mm-hmm.
0: resting on the foundation. Of the existence of God mm-hmm. in his worldview he's not he's not flustered he's not upset he's calm there's a there's part of the part of the cross-examination where Bonson says this what God says to be good <laughs> is good because it reflects his own character mm-hmm. God is good and is the standard of goodness that's one of the presuppositions to the Christian worldview We've talked about this before, that everything rests on God as pure being. We mentioned this in the STM class, that the unity, the, the problem of the one and the many, the philosophical problem of the one and many, is solved by God, in whom, who is one, and in whom is a plurality of persons. And so his existence is the foundation for all reality. So all goodness, uh, we talked about this in, in our Genesis uh, survey, how any evaluation, where God declared something to be good. God, God did that. God started that. So any standard of goodness, laws of logic, uh, beauty, absolutes, absolute truth, all of it is, is resting on the foundation of God. And that's why we say that the, it's only the Christian worldview that provides us with the preconditions for intelligibility. No other worldview can provide that? Why? Because they rest on an idol, which the Bible says is nothing and less than nothing, right? So, <clears throat> this is um, this is the uh, cross examination. We're going to get into the rebuttal. We may probably only have time for Dr. Bonson's rebuttal, which is good enough for us because um, his his is important to listen to. So, we we'll follow along there. <coughs>
2: Having concluded our segment of cross-examination, we'll now begin final rebuttal to segment number one. Dr. Bonson, I now turn to you for an both my car is in the parking lot and it's not the case that my car is in the parking lot. There is law of a certain society
0: understand or is there anybody who maybe needs a little explanation of what Dr. Bonson means when he keeps on talking about uh, laws of logic, how Dr. Stein must say that laws of logic are conventional, uh, social in nature. Do you understand that? Anybody need a quick explanation of that? It's confusing, I think. I don't really understand. Okay, sure. So a lot, what are you saying is these laws of law, like the law of non-contradiction, like a a number of different fallacies. Uh, Wayne mentioned the straw man fallacy. All these different laws that govern uh, making valid arguments. Um, All those laws, they don't have an existence, do they? Like uh, like I can pick up, here's a law. Here's the law of non-contradiction. Let me show it to you. We can't, we can't do that. We just—they're—they're they're, um, universal, they're absolute, but they're also uh, non-material, they're abstract. Okay? So that's a law of logic. And what Doctor Stein wants to maintain, what many people today maintain, because they deny that there are any absolutes, they want to say everything is relative. They want to say laws of logic are just agreed upon by the society in which you live. So they're social conventions. So we convene together and agree that, hey, it's a good idea for us to not contradict ourselves. You know, uh, my car is in the parking lot. My car is not in the parking lot is a meaningless statement. So let's not, let's not say that. Okay, number one, the law of non-contradiction. What do we want to talk about next? You know, so even to have that conversation assumes laws of logic. Mm-hmm. So what, he's, what Dr. Stein and many in today's <clears throat> Well, I was gonna say universities, but it's also high schools and uh, you know, community colleges and junior high or middle schools and elementary schools. There are no moral absolutes, everything is relative, and anything we agree upon that has the appearance of an absolute, like morals and, and laws of logic, are simply social conventions. They're simply things that we agree upon to get along well in our society. In our society, what did you use, Joe, the other day? It's either expected behavior or unexpected behavior. Mm-hmm. So the kid punching the little girl and mm-hmm. and he has to go into another area because that's unexpected behavior. <laughs> he can't say he can't say that's wrong. That's that's he definitely can't say that's sin. Mm-hmm. So in his school he has to. Do I need to cut this out of the audio? Um, <laughs> in his school he cannot say moral right and wrong. He can't say good and bad. He can't say don't do, you know, he just has to say, I'm sorry, son, that's unexpected behavior. <laughs> we want. We all want to be having <laughs> expected behavior. That's, that's our social convention here. So, the problem with, now, does anybody immediately see the problem with all laws of logic and laws of morality and everything else being social conventions? What makes Hitler's Germany decide. wrong? What makes Nazi Germany wrong? In fact, Nazi Germany, and Hitler is a person, He's got the pattern of history on his side because many leaders uh, throughout human history have been genocidal in nature. Mm -hmm. They go in and take over and then they wipe out the entire civilization, boys, girls, uh, kids, everything, because they don't want those little young ones growing up to take their head one day. So Hitler's really not a historical aberration. What we have in our government now is historical aberration. We're the different ones. So it's, it's we, we would look at Hitler's Germany and say, so tell me, since they got together and convened together and said, hey, this is how we want to conduct our society, uh, that is, Jews are non-persons and can be gassed, um, or take it into our own country. There were the Dred Scott laws, remember, uh, where we said uh, African American people, not really, they're just kind of subhuman, that okay? That was what the law said at that time. So but somebody said, no, that's not right, and they went against the social convention, what were they basing that on? They were basing that on a higher absolute of morality. Same thing with laws of logic. They are not socially uh, decided upon. They're not social conventions. And so that's what Dr. Dr. Bonson is trying to pin him down
1: on. Okay. Thank you. Okay. That makes more
0: sense. So, like I said, there's there's plenty more to go. You have. I'm not going to. Next time we come in, I'm not going to do Dr. Stein's rebuttal. So read that on your own. Uh, if you're having trouble sleeping, uh, <laughs> go ahead and read that tonight, and uh, let that be your devotion. No, don't let that be your devotion. <laughs> yes. Uh, real quick, West. We do it? a definition real quick on the transient. So the transcendental argument is is an argument based uh, basically it's a negative in a negative form. It's to say um, that apart from the the true God, you can't prove anything at all. So it's the impo- proving God by the basis on the basis of the impossibility of the contrary. That is, our God, the Christian God of Christian theism, Christian Bible, transcends all other explanations. And so the impossibility of the contrary is to say, let's say that that God weren't in existence, then everything is impossible. Nothing can be explained. That's the impossibility of the contrary. Does that make sense? Okay. Good question. All right. So we're a couple minutes over, but we started a couple minutes late. So there you go. Can I pray for us? Father, I want to thank you again for tonight. We thank you for raising up men in the church like Dr. Bonson and, and uh, Cornelius Van Til, his instructor, teacher, and and so many others besides. That we we learn so much from them, stand on their shoulders. We thank you for even the technology that has provided uh, an opportunity for us to learn like this. Uh, we're so grateful to be able to uh, be able to access this material, this content. And thank you for helping us through it, to think it through and to use the mind that you've given us in in a, in a way that's sanctified and pleasing to you. And we just pray that you'd uh, continue to help us as we review this debate and then as we press on to, to other things as well. We, we don't just want to get facts in our head. We really do want to embrace an understanding, a worldview that we might um, uh, speak as Christians about you, about Christ, about uh, your perfect eternal salvation, and bring it to the world around us. We love you. We thank you so much for our church, and thank you for the time we've had this evening. Uh, please use it to your glory and in the honor uh, to the honor of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.
1: Amen. Amen.